The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. So I know I gave a lot of instructions, but we're uh, learning this map of the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness of breathing, and it can feel like, well, boy, that's way too much to do in any one sit. But there's really something to learning the map so you don't have to keep it in mind. It will be just sort of there in the background informing and illuminating what's going on. And although we learn it in a linear way, that doesn't mean that that's how we practice. We might just find that we're, you know, right when we sit down, things for whatever reason are really settled, and we're just aware of the space of the mind. That's, in a sense, what's predominant. And then we might, for whatever reason, get lost in thought, and then when we come to, the mind's really distracted, and then we need to go back to the first one to three instructions where we're just trying to track the present moment experience using the breath just as a way of abandoning the mind's fixation on thought. Thinking about this and one thought leading to the next. So for those who find it useful, I I recommend you go to the blog. We put up the instructions, the sutta of the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing, the discourse. So if you look uh, on the homepage, one of the little squares at the bottom is the link for the blog. And I think the most recent entry on the blog is just uh, a little bit about the instructions and the link to all of the instructions and some comments from some contemporary teachers about mindfulness, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness <coughs> of breathing. So I want to review it tonight and then also next week. So we're slowly moving. Remember, there are 16 instructions. So I'm going to go through them again. And it makes sense. There's a lot of logic. Um, As an oral tradition, before they wrote down the teachings of the Buddha, it existed, these teachings from the Buddha existed for a couple centuries or maybe even a little longer as an an oral tradition. So they used these very systematic maps because it made it easier to pass on the teachings from one generation to the next. So 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. The first set of four are really about being intimate with the experience of embodiment and healing the relationship between the mind and the body. And the fruit of that work, you might remember from the guided guided instructions, is a pervasive feeling of calm in the body. And that pervasive feeling, experience of calm, arises because the mind isn't irritating the body. The mind knows how to be with the body, be aware of the body, include the body in a way that doesn't disturb the energies of the body. So the first two instructions, breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing in long, breathing in short, one knows I'm breathing in short. And then the second instruction, breathing out long, one knows I'm breathing out long, breathing out short, one knows I'm breathing out short. And here, The first two instructions are just asking us, can we track the physicality of the breathing process with enough integrity, enough continuity to break the spell of the mind being addicted to its thinking and worrying and planning and wondering and 
analyzing and thinking, doubting, am I good at this, am I bad at this? Right? Because if I'm really going to be aware of the in-breath and aware of the out-breath with enough cl- uh, clarity to know whether that's a relatively long or short breath, whether it's a relatively smooth or rough breath, I can't be wondering about what my cat's doing at home or what's happening in the election or whether the person next to me is a better meditator than I am. We have to let that stuff be in the background or maybe fall away completely in order to track the present moment as this experience of embodiment. And it's not our habit. You know how it is. We can go through much of the day and then it's like, oh boy, I didn't even realize there was a body there. When's the last time there was a real clear sense? Oh yeah, body, sensation, pressure, hardness, softness, roughness, coolness, warmth, right? Just the reality of embodiment. Now hopefully, you know, people here we've been, at least we're interested in the practice and probably practicing to some degree. So hopefully the answer to that question, you know, when was the last time there was a clear sense of embodiment, it was like, well, maybe 10 minutes ago, (laughs) right? But other people might be like, you know, unless there's just a lot of physical pain, and even when there's physical pain, doesn't mean the awareness, the mind that knows is knowing sensations as they are. The mind might be knowing the thought, I hate this pain in my body. Why me? That's not awareness. That's not intimacy with body sensation. That's you know, being identified with thought. So that real connection, the knowing mind, knowing the body, so much so that it lets go of everything else, that's an, you know, that's an unusual state for most of us. So the first two instructions is a pretty high bar. So if you spend several years, uh, most of your meditation time in the first number of years of your practice and step one and two, don't feel bad. That's, that's not, that's really par for the course. Maybe the first decade or two, maybe the first few lifetimes of <laughs> doing mindfulness of breathing, or just learning to put down thought. But remember, this is, imp- this is important. I mentioned this the last couple of weeks as well. The way we do that is by getting interested in the experience of embodiment. Like, can there be awareness of breathing in from the beginning to the end of the in-breath, from the beginning to the end of the out-breath? That's how we break the spell. That's how we put down the addiction momentarily to thinking. Not by telling ourselves you shouldn't be thinking, but by training the mind to be interested in breathing in to be interested in breathing out. And then the third instruction you might remember is while you're breathing in, while you're aware of breathing in, can you experience the whole body? While you're aware of breathing out, can you be sensitive? Can the mind, the knowing mind, the attention, be sensitive to the whole body? So this is, we're learning, training, and having this all-embracing, all-inclusive awareness of body through the in-breath, through the out-breath. So now we're not just focusing on the touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. We're not just focusing on the rising and falling of the belly. We still, of course, are going to notice 
what used to be maybe the primary anchor or the primary meditation object, but now we're softening or broadening the view. So breathing in, all the sensations are welcome to be known. Breathing out, all the mind is sensitive to the whole body. Whatever is predominant in terms of sensation, that will be in the forefront of what's being known. But all the other sensations that are less intense or less obvious, less predominant, they're going to be right there in the perimeter of the experience. Does that make sense? That's a real skill to realize, because it's actually an insight. The mind is realizing that the present moment, knowing the body, knowing the breath in the body, they're really, we're learning this boundarylessness of the present moment. The boundaries, the different compartments, oh yeah, this is my sensations in my nose, this is the sensations in the foot, this is hearing, this is seeing. That way of com- um, you know, dividing up our experience into compartments, that takes thinking. So if we're just more in the pure, simple, bare awareness of the body, then it's all one thing. Even hearing and seeing the other sort of experiences from the five physical senses, smelling, tasting, it's all right here in the moment. Something might be predominant, so in the sense that it's right in front of the attention, but everything else is right there. So, you know, we could breathe in now, feel the whole body, but that jet sound, we could also be aware of that jet sound. It's not like in a different location. It's just the thought that hearing is different than sensation that makes it appear like they're being known in different places. But all the knowing is arising here and now in the mind. Right? So we train just initially in that by breathing in, experiencing the whole body, training, breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And this, of course, as you might imagine, is what sets in motion the experience of calm, which is the fourth. And that finishes the first set of four, which is about being intimate with the experience of embodiment, or really healing the mind-body relationship. And the fruit of that, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is that pervasive sense of calm in the body. So this is a nice set, right? If you can, you know, not that you go immediately there, but you might touch that. And the key here is to, you know, because there might be agitation in the mind and body, but the Buddha says specifically, honey, he doesn't say honey, but you could put that in, honey, while you're breathing in, train your mind to experience calm, to notice calm. Not notice the agitation, not notice the knee pain, not notice somebody sniffling next to you, not noticing that thought, I don't think I'm good at this. But noticing, even if it's faint, even if it's indistinct, noticing the beginnings of calm in the body as you breathe in. So it's a little bit of a leap of faith, right? You have to be willing to open or look. Is there calm? You have to be able to recognize calm, even if it's just in the seed state. It hasn't fully blossomed. But just the beginnings of the 
the energetic system of the body settling down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a settledness. This feels pretty stable in the body. Oh, yeah, breathing in knowing that experience. Breathing out knowing that experience. The more you train your mind to notice calm, the more you notice it. The more it grows, it spreads, it deepens, and the whole body begins to settle. We really stick. Don't move on to the fifth instruction until you feel like there's a real confidence in your own experiencing of calm, the mind experiencing the calm, the mind being intimate with the calm in the body. And then we move into the second set of four, which has to do with understanding the activity of the mind. Now, on the grosser level, the activity of mind is usually, as I mentioned in the instruction, the stance between a feeling arising, a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling arising, and the thinking mind thinking it has to do something, analyze it, think about it, want it, not want it. So to even get there, we need it's because this is obviously more subtle than just being aware of the whole body as sensation, being aware of the whole body as sensation with your in and out breath. So to be able to be aware of it, the Buddha is inviting us to notice pleasant feeling. So we start with joy. Joy is a more gross form of happiness. So the first two steps in the second set of four, so step number five and six out of the 16 steps, has to do with noticing joy and then noticing ease, a more refined kind of happiness. And again, your mind might not be pure joy. There might be just a little, little tiny sliver of joy and the rest is, you know, whatever else, whatever other quality of irritation or boredom or... Now, what is joy? That's an important thing for a human being to know. We should, at this point in our life, know the difference between joy and whatever the opposite of joy is. So joy is this feeling, this mental feeling or experience of expansion and lightness and buoyancy, right? Kind of that excitement even. In the tradition it said that when you're walking across the desert and really, really thirsty and finally you see the water, 500 meters, 400 meters, 300 meters, joy begins to arise, right? It's that anticipatory, oh my God, finally. But you don't have it yet. It's not really pleasant yet, but there's excitement. There's this like buoyancy, like, oh yeah, it's coming, almost there. And then the ease is when you're in the water, immersed in the water, drinking the water, refreshed by the water, then that's the sukha. So piti and sukha. Piti is joy, rapture. Sukha is like ease or more refined kind of happiness. Refined or ease ease of well-being, you could call it too. So, again, the instruction follows this pattern. One trains oneself while breathing in to tune into joy. One trains oneself while breathing out, tune into joy. Not the agitation, not the disappointment, but the joy. The more you tune to joy, attune to joy, the more the mind becomes filled with joy. 
Just like the more I notice what's wrong, the more I can notice what's wrong, the more aversion there is. This is why living your life with a critical mind, an aversive mind, is not very pleasant. <laughs> living with a greedy mind is not very pleasant because it just reinforces that pattern. So now we're changing the pattern, noticing joy, let it spread, let it deepen, really rest in the breathing in, knowing joy, breathing out, knowing joy. And then that joy itself will support the arising of that more refined happiness that we could call ease. right? Because the joy is the kind of happiness so is a kind of happiness. So when we experience a kind of happiness, we don't have to search for it. And then not being in need of joy is easeful. Right? It's a contentedness of heart. Ah, I don't have to try to get joy. It's all around me. It's in me. So I can be easeful. So we notice that. So the Buddha says one trains oneself while breathing in. Tune, attune to the ease of heart, the ease of the mind, while breathing out, experiencing the ease, the inner happiness, right? Until that deepens and spreads and as if the whole mind colored, like a, a very, you know, initially the smile of joy is kind of like, ah. You know, there's a little tension in, in joy, right? But then... The, the smile of ease is much more of a serene smile. I mean, you don't even, you know, you don't even need to kind of like the Joker in the Batman. You know, so you don't need that. It's just like, like the statue sometimes you see of the uh, Buddhist icons. You know, they have this very serene smile, hardly a smile at all. But the sense, if the artist is good, the sense is that person's in a good place. Right? That being is in a good place. So that's, that's the first two. And then, as I mentioned in the instructions, when that sense of ease, that sense of con- contentedness and well-being is deep, established in the mind, in the heart, then that mind can be aware of mental activity without being confused by it. See, now with an ordinary mind, it's really, we, we get seduced by our activity of mind, whatever the mind is thinking or worrying or planning. It's just so easy to be identified with the thinking, the content of the thoughts, right? But now that the system is really, the mind especially is really more uh, immersed in the sense of contentedness and ease, ease of well-being, then the activity sort of stands out as something to be observed. Oh, there's this mental process unfolding. This dance between a feeling and then the mind out of habit, feeling it has to think about that feeling. Oh, I'd like to get that. I'd like to hold on to that. I'd like to get rid of that one. I'd like to ignore these neutral feelings. So it's interesting how much of our mental activity, mental processes, are just a... Just the mind reacting, not necessarily in big, you know, agitated ways, but just acting on pleasure and pain. It's like you have a memory, and it's a pleasant memory, and then because it was pleasant, the memory, you want to think more about it. Or you have a memory, and it's a painful memory, 
And it's the unpleasantness of that memory that makes you want to think more about it. Now, why did that happen to me? Or what can I do about that? So this is what you're observing. You're breathing in. The Buddha says, again, the same formula. One trains oneself while breathing in to experience mental formations, to experience these mental processes, this mental activity, this stance between feeling and perception and, you know, and the activity of mind that arises out of the perception of pleasantness or the perception of unpleasantness. So we're just observing. We're not getting entangled in the thoughts. We're just observing there is mental activity. There is mental activity with each in and out breath. And that calm and non-judging awareness of the mental activity is the cause for things quieting down. There's less and less. Like now the mind kind of understands, well, feelings are constantly coming. Maybe I don't have to do anything about the feeling. So there's a pleasant feeling. There's a pleasant feeling. Or there's an unpleasant feeling. An unpleasant feeling. There's a neutral feeling. A neutral feeling. So the fourth Instruction in the second set of four, so this would be instruction number eight, is one trains oneself while breathing in to experience the quietness of mind or to quiet the mind, the quieting of the mind. And while breathing out, the quieting of the mind. Which means that, yeah, there are feelings, because feelings are just going to keep coming and going. As long as the mind is aware, everything the mind is aware of is going to have a feeling associated with it. I like it, I don't like it, it's neutral. But the mind's sort of waking up to some degree and realizing I can just be aware that it feels like this now without having to do a dance with it, to react to the feeling, to think about it in any way. And that's that quieting. Calming the mental formations is one of the ways it's translated. One, I breathe in, calming the mental formations or quieting the mental formations. I breathe out, calming, quieting the mental formations, right? Feeling, but no reaction to the feeling. And then I, when we did our guided meditation, I gave a little instruction for this number nine. So I, first four about embodiment, Second four, really about mental activity, and in particular the feeling, the, the feeling tone that drives so much of the mental activity. And then the, the third set of four instructions, so that would be nine through 12, has to do with awareness of the mind itself. You could say space of the mind. You could say me, <laughs> right? Or what we take to be me or the knowing mind, awareness. But it's not just the awareness, it's the coloring of the awareness. It's the shape of the mind, the coloring of the mind, right? Because sometimes the mind's a little dull. Sometimes the mind's a little clear, or a lot clear. Sometimes the mind is bright. Sometimes the mind is low energy. Sometimes the mind is agitated. Sometimes it's stable. So now it's not so much, this is a fine distinction, it's not so much the activity of the mind, it's more we're looking at the mind and any pervasive coloring of the mind or pervasive attitude or tone of the mind, right? So the first step is just to realize there is the space of mind here. 
So when we did that at the end of the guided meditation, did you get a sense like that it's so interesting that awareness can actually be aware that there is space? Did you, did you have that sense when I gave that instruction? So in the same way, um, we could tune into the space of this room, right? So just intellectually at least, just sense, yeah, there is space in this room right now. And then as you're staying attuned to the space in this room, just imagine like, let's remove the walls and the ceiling and the floor and the earth below the floor and the cushions and the chairs and the people and the lighting. So now there's space. See, normally we know space because we recognize the objects that are arising in that space. But we can sense the space of the room without being confused by the different objects that arise or being known in that space. It takes some training, doesn't it? Because we have a very deep habit in the mind to be attuned, to be interested in what is arising in the space of knowing, the space of awareness, the space of the mind. But with training, with the prompting, which is like why we memorize the instructions, we practice with them, is then it gets to be a habit. When the mind is, no, because remember, the mind's pretty quiet now. It's pretty stable. We've dropped a lot of the agitation. Now, this may be just a few minutes in a sit where you're in this more stable place where you can do the instruction. The Buddha says, one trains oneself breathing in, experiencing the mind. One trains oneself breathing out, experiencing the mind. Now remember the using using the breath as a kind of tether, that's just specific to this set of instructions. You can do this practice without coordinating these different insights, these different objects of awareness with the in and out breath, right? But you might find it really useful because it keeps it, you know, the nice thing about this is it's less likely you're going to space out. Because if I sat down and said, okay, take the first 10 or 15 minutes and stabilize your awareness, and then I just left you alone for 15 minutes, and then after 15 minutes I said, now notice the space of the mind. You might notice it for a while, but then you might get lost in thought. And because you don't have the tether of the in and out breath, you might not realize that you've lost the thread of the present moment, the study of the mind, the space of the mind. So it's really nice to remember, well, yeah, breathing in. Now, where was I? What's predominant? And maybe the mind is just too gross to notice the space of the mind. So you go back, well, I can notice the sensations of breathing in. Or maybe there's a lot of joy, so maybe I'll go back to that step. Breathing in, experiencing joy. Breathing out, experiencing joy. So you might, in real life, in your practice, be jumping around in the different steps. But you can't really do that until you know them. And it will just help you know the terrain of your practice. Because you're always going to be, basically, either distracted or you're going to be somewhere along these 16 steps. Next week we'll do the last set of four. But let me take a few more minutes talking about this third set of four, mindfulness of mind. First one, training yourself while breathing in to experience the mind. Training yourself to breathe out, experiencing the space of the mind. 
Then the next instruction the Buddha gives is either translated as pleasing the mind or satisfying the mind. So as you breathe in, satisfying the mind. As you breathe in, train yourself to satisfy the mind. So what does satisfy the mind mean? What is the Buddha pointing to here? So first, we're noticing the space of the mind, and we're also noticing how that space of the mind is colored by any particular attitude, mood, or quality that is sort of coloring the mind. Right? And so that satisfying the mind, I think, this is kind of my sense of it, is the mind basically feeling some confidence, some competence in how to, how to uh, help the mind, how to purify the mind, let's say, how to stabilize the mind, how to remove anything that distorts the clarity of the mind. So the more we understand that the shape of the mind, the quality of the mind is a conditional arising, a lawful arising, that means we can participate, we can show up in a way that allows the mind to become clearer, more stable. And that that's a kind of empowerment. Like, we don't... Because my mind is dull, I don't have to just live with it. But hating the dullness or trying to control it may not be the way to purify the mind. Right? The way to purify dullness or irritation or boredom or you know, all the different ways that the mind can be a little off be a little tight. One of the words that's used for a very like concentrated or still or unified mind, stable mind, is that it's malleable. It's nimble. It can do the work of seeing things as they are. It's really, this is such an interesting thing about when you get to know the experience of what we call samadhi, a mind that is stable, is it has two qualities that seem contradictory. There's just a lot of energy in that mind, very bright, not afraid of work, not afraid of seeing, deconstructing, not afraid of sort of this uh, stable, patient, listening, you know, where we're letting the objects reveal themselves. So it has this really bright, energized quality, but it's that energy is very stable, very still. Normally when we have a lot of energy, we, we think of like bubbling over. Oh, I've got to do something with all this energy. But how about having a lot of energy, but that energy is characterized as being very stable. So the mind is like you're sitting on, you know, a, Whatever, whatever image of energy, like you know, a nuclear reactor, or you know, a lot of power, but no neurotic need to do anything with it. A lot of brightness, but you, the mind doesn't neurotically need to see objects, doesn't need to do anything with that brightness, but it's totally okay 
if there's something to be seen, it's totally okay really doing whatever needs to be done to see it clearly, to understand, oh, it's this being known. Right? But it's not greedy, it's not needy, it's not aversive, it's not afraid, it's not complacent. So we call, that's why uh, samadhi is not just the normal idea we have of tranquility and calm. It's sort of like, a re, you know, we, we learn it first, you know, when we're in that sort of really relaxed but sleepy kind of withdrawn state. But that's not samadhi. That's not the tranquility of samadhi. It's like the mind and body, but the mind we're talking about here, it's really stable, but it's totally, like that stability is totally in the service of seeing things clearly. So the stability, the the tranquility is in the service of seeing clearly. And so as we understand that, as we understand how that all works, that's how we satisfy the mind. It's like, remember I mentioned in the first set of four that the mind-body's relationship is healing? Now it's the mind-mind's relationship is healing. The mind's relationship to the mind. The mind's understanding of the mind is healing. Like, oh. Like we're, we're sort of getting, the mind is getting how to take care of the mind. Mostly we live our life oblivious that there's even a mind here, which is the most ironic thing. The second most ironic thing is we live our life thinking we're not going to die, right? Or what even, don't even contemplate what that might be, that we're, you know, death. But the other amazing thing is life, more than anything, is characterized by the fact that there's a mind here. But how many times in our life have we been like deeply interested in like what yeah, what is this mind? Like using the mind to do its best to understand the mind. And just thinking about the mind is not really using the whole mind to understand the mind. Pretty quickly when we use the thinking mind to understand the mind, we just end up doing that, you know, circular philosophical loop. <laughs> I remember people used to not like me in college because you know how you stay up late sometimes after using things that were illegal, you know, and talk about things like, what is the mind? <laughs> you know, and you'd, you could just like really irritate your friends, you know, by having these sort of nifty little logic traps. <laughs> But eventually, it takes a while for some of us, but eventually you realize how limited that way of understanding the mind is. So that part starts to shut up a little bit more, and we realize it's more useful to use just a bare attention, just a simple presence in observing the activity of the mind. And in observing, that's really the second set of four, in observing the activity of the mind, we realize all that activity is happening somewhere. Yeah, it's happening in the mind. So the mind has two things. It has activity, thoughts, emotions, things that move. And then there's something that doesn't seem to move much. Right? I mean, moods kind of move, move, but the moods are coloring something that doesn't move. And you could just call it awareness or the knowing mind or the space of the mind or the space of the present moment. And then, then, we're kind of, then we can really start studying because there's something about the, there's really two things about the mind. 
You know, there's the activity, and then there's something that doesn't move so much, which we can call the space of knowing. Because you can't really know knowing. Knowing doesn't really, I mean, in a sense it comes and goes. It knows the different objects that are arising. But it's always there. It's always ready to know the knowing mind, awareness. That's sort of an interesting thing about the mind. So we study it, and that's very satisfying. It's like that child who figures out how to stack blocks. It's so satisfying. You ever see a kid who's been working on something, and then they, they do it, and they feel good having done that? Yeah. It's the same thing when we learn this more subtle trick of being able to observe the mind. And so then the third, and that third set of four, experiencing the mind, satisfying the mind, and then stilling the mind, concentrating the mind, quieting the mind, you could say. Now this stilling of the mind comes because of this competence. Right? The more we learn about how it all works, that there is a mind, that the mind is coloring, and if we see the coloring but aren't confused by it, like we see the irritation, we see the boredom, we see the impatience, we see the neediness, this sort of leaning, the subtle leaning forward in the mind, but we just see it as a coloring. We're just, oh yeah, that's, that's just that mood or just that coloring of the mind. We're no longer feeding it because it's the identification that feeds it. And so it fades. The mind becomes more clear, more stable, more still. And then when that stillness reaches perfection, we're at that fourth instruction in the third set of four. Experiencing the mind, satisfying the mind, stilling the mind, and releasing the mind. Now, the way I understand this releasing of the mind is it's kind of releasing the last of any fixation in the mind. So remember I was saying on this level of the mind, we're really talking about the space of the mind, not the activity. So we're really tuning into the space of the mind, the space of knowing. And now that space of knowing has been really purified, right? And so now it's been so purified that we say uh, we train in releasing the mind. So we're noticing that space of the mind as empty of any fixed thing, or you could say empty of self, any self-drama, anything that seems like a point of somebody being there. It's being teased out temporarily, right? So that mind is released. That mind is just nature. So one of the characteristics of nature is there's no center to it, right? There's no center to Minneapolis or the woods or a lake. You know, I mean, we might say that, you know, in terms of the sort of space, you know, we can... But actually, to that phenomena, there's the phenomena of the lake, the phenomena of the weather today, there's even the phenomena of this body-mind. There's no center. I mean, you might find the center of my... Brain, but that's not the center of this activity of body and mind, right? Or you might, like maybe there's some way, some mathematical equation that could figure out what the center is in terms of space of this thing we 
defined as the inside the skin. But that's not the center of this activity. Where's the center of Common Ground Meditation Center or the United States, right? See, these, there's, there's never any point that defines activity of nature. Nature is, because nature is always an interdependent web of causality. There's no center anywhere to it. So that's just uh, some words that can kind of point your mind to this fourth instruction in the set of four about mindfulness of mind, releasing the mind. So the mind is like nature. It's wild, open space, no fixed anything anywhere in it. And that mind, so now we have a very purified mind, that's the mind that can have the insight, which we'll talk about next week. The the last set of four instructions, um, 13 through 16, 13, 14, 15, and 16, all have to do with using that very beautiful free mind, released mind, to see that everything is in motion. And seeing that everything is in motion, the heart should release. So just to give you the four in the last set of four. So breathing in, breathing out, experiencing impermanence, the ephemeral, insubstantial, changing nature of everything. Breathing in, breathing out, experiencing the letting go of this passion, nothing to cling to. Right? In a fluid process world, nothing to cling to. The releasing, the sort of releasing of any grasping. And basically we're uprooting, because remember the mind is already in a very pure state, released state, right? So in this last set of four, the insights are uprooting the latent tendency to get tight. Because the mind is already not tight by the time we get to number 12. Breathing in, breathing out, releasing the mind. But there's still the tendency to get tight, to take things personally. right? Because we've had moments in our lives where we felt pretty free, right? I mean, hopefully, you may not remember the moments, but certainly you've had moments when you felt really tight, right? Anybody not know those moments? So how about all those moments that weren't that moment? When you felt, or those moments when you felt really tight. Well, those were moments you didn't feel so tight. And maybe some of those moments you didn't feel so tight were not much tightness at all. You know, there was enough joy, enough ease, enough trust in the present moment that for moments, maybe not many moments, but for a few moments, the mind wasn't constructing any center, any fixed identity anywhere in the space of the mind and body. And there, what was left was the absence of suffering or freedom. But then, it doesn't take long. We could go from a moment of real freedom to being in a contracted state, right? Because there were late, the latent tendency, the habit to get tight was still there. It hadn't been uprooted. It's not easy to uproot the latent tendency to take things personally. So we develop the skill to get to this very purified state of mind, released state of mind, and we don't waste it. We don't just indulge in how pure and released the mind is. We put it to work. 
to uproot the latent tendencies to get tight. And that's by seeing the impermanence, seeing the letting go of dispassion, seeing the cessation, and seeing the relinquishment. And I'll talk more about these four steps next week. Now remember, this is pretty subtle stuff. Right? We're really talking about full awakening at this point or in the direction of full awakening. And I don't know too many people who are fully awake walking around. But like I said at the beginning, we'll be in this territory every once in a long while. Because even though you might not have systematically purified your mind, every once in a long while, the conditions of the mind come together and the mind is really stable. And we want to be ready to practice, like to see in a very simple, clear way the fluid, river-like, process-like nature of everything. And then that allows the mind to see the rightness of letting go, the dispassion. Like I can just let everything be. Needing a center, needing a fixed ground falls away. That need falls away. That's what dispassion is. So I'll leave it here. We have some time. Be nice to hear from a few of you. Okay, I'm thinking about um, the fact as I'm learning this that there are two communities that I'm going to be going into, one in West Africa and one in America, sometime during the next nine months or so. And I'm remembering what what thoughts came to my mind as I first began to learn about meditation. And one of the things that there was something about meditation that was reminding me of being an infant or being a, you know, innocent child. And I'm wondering about sort of making reference to that to have people who haven't been introduced to this at all, to begin to go into it and not look at it as something foreign or uh, alien from them. And I think about how, um, you know, an infant or an innocent child doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of ideas like we do as adults, because, you know, as we keep, keep getting acculturated and given ideas about reality that we don't necessarily have from the get-go. So I'm wondering, here's a question, is there some ways where infant mind or child mind overlaps with this practice? Yeah. I think certainly as a metaphor, I think it can be useful because uh, and not just the child mind, but also nature too or even your cat, or a bunny in the backyard, or a bird, or an ocean surf. Because when we look at systems like that, like a child, and you watch a child playing, sometimes that child's mind is in that unformed state. It doesn't mean the child is liberated. It just means that what the mind is picking up when it looks at the child, it looks at chickadees at the bird feeder, looks at clouds floating through the sky, looks at wind blowing through the leaves of a tree. What the mind really is attuning to is how everything is happening on its own 
and how there's no need to define, no need to fix the activity of the present moment with a concept or an idea. So the mind is being reminded that it can, be, it can let go, right? Sometimes when we see a child. So that, it, in that way, a childlike mind can be a useful metaphor for talking about where we're going. But, you know, children, you know, can be in that formless state, and then you take their toy away from them, and then they're a tyrant, you know. And if they were bigger, they would throw you around. You know, they're, like they don't hold back when they grab for it. I mean, they're, they're going for it. And uh, probably the same with the chickadees. Like, it's so interesting. Like, you can sort of have a soft gaze, and you watch the chickadees feeding, you know, or birds generally feeding. And then you, you turn your attention, and now you're looking at it in terms of power. And you really see, like, no, they're being violent, they're being aggressive, they're being passive, you know, one's the victim, one's the perpetrator. So you can look at things in different ways. Like you could see the surf in terms of this free activity, or you could see how the surf is just like pummeling the, the rocks and the sand and crushing them and turning them into little bits and... You know, it's like a, a violent act, right? So it's really a matter of what you're tuning into when you use the, like the metaphor of the child or metaphor of nature. That's the important thing. It's like we want to point to the a mind or we're pointing to something that helps the mind remember the unformed state, the, the possibility of not being fixed. And I think a child like mine can definitely do that. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. Anything else? If I need to talk about the mind, I think I'd want to emphasize to the communities that I'm working with that it's not this physical brain, but it has something to do with the resonance or the energy that happens in this space and how that's connected to the consciousness that manifests this yeah and mostly in the east it's here you know it's the west that talks about the mind up here and it's just that's just a habit so the one of the ways i talk about it so you might want to kind of find out from them how they like like ask them when you're suffering do you know you're suffering and they'll go yeah and then say well so when you know you're suffering what is it that you're knowing where do you know it and they might say, well, my heart hurts. Or when you're happy, where do you know that? Well, I feel that love, or I feel that lightness, or I feel that ease. Because that's, then you can point there. You can use that space. Where, where there's the experience of suffering and the experience of release, that's the heart, or that's the mind. And I try more and more. I mean, I, I'm not consistent, but to use both words together, heart and mind, and not just one of them. Because I think it can be confusing, especially in the West. I mean, maybe wherever you're going, you can just talk about the heart. But, you know, I don't know the other, these cultures you're going to be in, so it'll be fun to figure that out. Yeah, thanks, Louis, for bringing that all up. Other folks, we have a little bit of time. Yeah, Charlie, you want to go next? I'm wondering, I'm, I'm feeling totally relegated to like the first step 
maybe not even. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but we are all there at the first step most of the time. And so my but my question is, um, I've sometimes I've heard about. Um, it seems kind of like you're using uh, settling and um, unifying of attention to get joy, but sometimes you hear about um, using like loving kindness meditations or whatnot to settle the mind in order to. So I'm wondering about the the order of that and sort of like, can you, is there like preconditioning that you can do with other types of practices that are going to help this sequence that you're talking about? Absolutely. There are many ways to joy. The uh, healing, the experience of embodiment, mind-body relationship is one way. And the calm as the cause for the arising of joy. But you could go right to loving kindness, right, and, and just skip the embodiment piece. But more and more, when I teach the experience of metta or loving kindness or compassion, I use more and more. I'm using the experience of embodiment, and I just generally recommend to people that somehow the experience of embodiment be really front and center in your regular practice, because it's so conducive for practicing all day long out in the world in interactions. Um, so if, we, if we're always um, using the experience of the body, not necessarily the breath, but you could use breath in the body too, of course, like we were talking about tonight, but at least the experience of the body, the whole body, predominant sensations in the body, then it's like it's just so easy to come back to your practice throughout the day if you've trained your mind to be more and more intimate with the body. So just... Keep that in mind, yeah. So even all the practices can be body-based to a large degree. Thanks, Charlie. We need to end here. It's 9 o'clock, so we'll just take a few seconds, just enough time to let go of the words. You can pass the mic back to Colleen. Appreciate being here together, knowing that some of the words tonight will land and will come back in your practice. Others are sitting on some shelf in the mind. That's okay. It's nice to take a few seconds and appreciate all the generations of folks before us. They had busy lives, raised children, jobs, whatever. But somehow they found the time in their messy, busy lives to do the practice, to gain some real insight. And out of compassion, they shared it to the next generation. Now it's our turn. We have busy lives, complicated lives, pain, messiness. But it's our turn to do the best we can to develop some real wisdom and compassion and to become part of the causes and conditions for the releasing of suffering in our own hearts and in the world, and to pass it on. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.